Well, this morning, I want to begin by um, thanking Justin and the Jam Kids. Uh, That was not in the order of service. I had no idea that was going to take place. When Justin turned around and started looking at me, I was kind of going, something's going on here. It's getting weird. Um, But how how encouraging that is. So thanks to the Jam Kids for your your heart for missions. And uh, we look forward to seeing what God has in store. I can't preach this morning without telling uh, Dave and Aaron and your family how happy we are to see you back in town, and we missed you. And I'm sure your boys think I'm the ultimate weirdo because um, I want to say Jereen and me and Nathan. It's mostly Jereen because I fell asleep for much of it. But we watched Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit series over this weekend, and so I asked them, did you see any hobbits in New Zealand? And they're just like... I'm sure that that guy is weird, you know. <laughs> Hobbits don't exist. I thought they did. So, but it's really good to have you back. I received a text this morning from my good friends Wayne and Bonnie Pickens, and they sent their greetings and wanted to let me know that they were praying for Christ Fellowship, praying for me as I preached this morning. And I wrote back uh, rather quickly and said that I really do value that prayer because this morning's text is... It's a heavy text. It's a weighty text. In fact, for the next several weeks, that's really what we find unfolding in the book of Jude. And so um, I trust that your hearts are prepared and that you're engaged, ready to hear the word of God and respond to that word. So let's, let's pray together. Our Father, what a, a privilege it is to open the word of God. What a privilege it is to have it translated into our language, into the language of English, so that we can read it, so we can understand it. We fully acknowledge that it is the Holy Spirit that illumines this text and gives us the ability to not only uh, see the words, but to savor the words. My prayer this morning is that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ and we would savor the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would respond in a way that would bring honor and glory to you. Lord, as I mentioned a moment ago, this is a a heavy text. It's a weighty text. And so I I pray that you would uh, apply this particular passage to, to people spread all throughout the sanctuary today. Lord, for those that need to be encouraged, may they find deep encouragement in this word. For those who need to be challenged and those who need to be um, uh, convicted, May your spirit perform a a mighty work. And I acknowledge there's nothing that I can do to convince anyone. It is a a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And so we we entrust ourselves to you on this day and ask that uh, you would be glorified here in this place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Many of you remember the date very, very well. It was on September 11th, 2001 that my phone rang early in the morning. This was a morning that I was scheduled to go to a 5 o'clock prayer meeting. It is one of the only ones I ever missed. I slept in. And as the phone rang, the voice on the other end of the phone uttered these words. The World Trade Center is on fire. They think it might be terrorism. I quickly hung up the phone turned on the television, and every station, if you were remember that day, was covering that story. 
And it was certainly true. Smoke was billowing out of the North Tower. I'll never forget it. And it wasn't before too long that we learned that it was American Flight 11 that had flown out of Boston and had been hijacked and hit the tower as an act of terror. At 9.03 Eastern Standard Time, a second hijacked airliner, the United, United Airline Flight 175, also out of Boston, crashed into the South Tower. Both buildings were ablaze. Smoke was everywhere. And at 10.05, the South Tower collapses and left America in a state of shock. Minutes later, at 10.28, the North Tower collapses, unleashing a massive dust cloud that enveloped Manhattan, indeed the whole city of New York. As you remember, two other hijacked planes made their way to their destinations. One was diverted, as you remember, by a group of brave, brave heroes led by Tom Todd Beamer, and that plane crashed in the fields of Pennsylvania. The other struck the Pentagon. Firefighters dug through the rubble. The president of the United States addressed a grieving nation. And it wasn't too many hours or too many days before the whole country was captured by these two words. Never forget. Never forget the shameful act of terror that changed our nation forever. Never forget the victims. Never forget the families of the victims. Never forget the brave firefighters, the police officers, and the the heroes like Todd Beamer who gave their lives to save people they didn't even know. Never forget how America united as a country. Never, never forget. In our passage this morning, Jude has an important message that he wants the people of God to remember. It is not a political message. It is not a message about a country or an act of terror or an act of bravery. This is a message that touches on the sobering themes of sin and salvation and judgment. This is a message, I think you'll agree, that is easily forgotten. And so Jude sets out in this little letter to etch a message into the hearts and the minds of of the people of God. The title of the message is Never Forget. And I want to have you open in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to the letter of Jude, right before John's letter of Revelation. And I want to have you stand to your feet as we read just a few verses together, beginning in verse 5. And may I remind you that this is the authoritative word of God. May I remind you that when you, you grimace or you wonder, is that really in there? This is the inerrant, authoritative, infallible word of the living God. Read with me, beginning in verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. If we were to understand the central theme this morning in Jude 5, 6, and 7, we need to take a moment to reach back and look into the context. As some Bible scholars say, and I agree, context is king. We need to know what's happening in this passage. And so let me remind you that Jude, in this little letter, he appealed to the saints, he appealed to the people of God in the first century church to to contend for the faith. He calls them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And you remember that he had originally written this little letter to encourage these dear people. But as he he looked around at the, the focus of this church, he saw that trouble was brewing. And so the reason shifts, the reason for his exhortation is that false teachers or Theological pirates had crept into the church and sought to destroy it. So he moves from this theme of encouragement to exhortation. Namely, you must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Here's what he sees. He sees ungodly people. He sees people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. He sees people, false teachers, who deny the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are heretics who had subtly slipped into the the framework of the local church family. As we learned last week, verse 4 says that these false teachers were set apart for judgment in eternity past. Yesterday on Iron Man, we spoke briefly about God's eternal decree. May I remind you that God ordains everything that comes to pass. As the late R.C. Sproul used to say, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. There are no accidents in the universe. God ordains everything that comes to pass. And I remind you that because of the eternal decree that these false teachers, these heretics, these theological hucksters who had slipped into the local church family, they, in fact, were set apart for judgment. And so Jude has established the reason for his writing. He has established the reason for his letter, namely to contend for the faith, but he has also alerted these Christians to the reality of the situation. He wants their eyes to be wide open. He doesn't want them to be like the Christian uh, ostrich with, with his or her head in the sand. He wants them to be aware of what's happening in this church family. And that's my heart for you as well, that you would understand what's happening in the culture that surrounds us. Now, Jude doesn't waste any time as he continues to write. He tells his readers that he needs to remind them of something. Look at verse 5. He says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. He needs to remind them of something that they are well aware of. It's something that they already know, but it's obviously worth repeating or he wouldn't. Are you with me? Remind them of it. He wants to remind them of something that is of utmost importance. This, is, this has a, a high degree of importance. I, I want to have you look with me 
at the, the, the power of a reminder. The power of a reminder. The word that is translated in your English Bible, remind, in verse 5, comes from a Greek word that simply means to call to mind. It means to call to attention. It means to, to jog someone's memory. If you have young children or teenagers, and if you're a mother, you understand what it means to remind your children of something, don't you? I hear, I hear moms laughing. Sometimes our children have memories that need to be jogged a bit. I want to show you where this word appears in, in two passages in the pages of the New Testament. The first is on the screen. Remind them, Paul writes in Titus, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's a lot of different things that Paul is reminding them of. Same meaning here. Then in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. We read this, therefore, I intend always to remind you to jog your memory of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. That's exactly what Jude wants to do as he writes this little letter to the church in the first century. He wants to, to jog their memories. He wants to, to stir up their memories. He wants them to remember something that they've already been acquainted with. And I would ask this question. Why is it that children need a reminder? In fact, it's more than just children, isn't it? Some, if, if you're a woman and you have a husband, you're thinking, it's not just my children. It's my husband needs to remember a lot of things. The parent says to a child, be sure to clean your room. And you have these, these words that can be emblazoned onto every home. I forgot. Have you heard that one? Or the wife who asks her husband, honey, on your way home from work, can you pick up some eggs and milk? Later in the evening, he shows up. Steps on the front door, takes his shoes off, takes his coat off, sits in his big chair and begins to watch Fox News. The wife says, honey, where's the eggs and the milk? Join with me. I forgot. You're very quick. When it comes to matters of sin and salvation, when it comes to matters of judgment, even Christians, we tend to forget Martin Luther was asked, why is it that week in and week out, you continue to explain the gospel to us? You continue to tell us that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in a tomb for three days. And after that third day, he was raised from the dead. He made his ascent to the right hand of the Father, and he promises eternal life to anyone who will turn from their sins and Trust him. Why do you keep saying that? And Luther said in only the way that Luther could, because you keep forgetting. You see, we need to be reminded. And that is the reason why you hear the gospel from this pulpit week in and week out, because we tend to forget. Jude understands the makeup of a typical person. The typical person tends to be forgetful. 
And so he sets out in verse 5 to remind them. He reminds them about these themes of, of sin and salvation and judgment. And I want you to remember that at the very center of all of this discussion stands the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please remember that because I hear people who embrace a, a, a lifestyle of sin. They say things like this. Jesus never addresses the matter of homosexuality. Jesus never addresses the matter of sexual sin. I beg to differ. And we're going to see that Jesus has some very, very harsh judgment for every person who refuses to turn from his or her sin and turn to him to find salvation. I want you to see in this passage three reminders. Three reminders, three different very important realities. We need to have our memories jogged this morning. The first one is found in verse 5. And it is simply stated that Jesus saved people who trusted him and he judged those who did not. Jesus saved the people who trusted him and he judged the unbelieving. Look at verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. One of the things that my wife asks me on a fairly regular basis is, and I, I love the question because it holds me accountable, it keeps me on the, the straight and narrow preaching path. She asks me this, do you have any good illustrations? Do you have any good illustrations? Well, today... I don't have any illustrations. And the reason for that is Jude gives us three. The first illustration is the example of Israel. And if you would turn all the way back to the Old Testament, we're going to look at several passages this morning. I want to have you look at Numbers chapter 13. Because we learn about the first thing that Jude wants the first century church, and indeed every one of us, to remember here that Jesus saved people who trusted him, and he judged those who were numbered among the unbelievers. When we think about the example of Israel, I want to have you look at Numbers chapter 13. And we know the context here, generally speaking, that God has promised Israel that they would take possession of the promised land. It would be a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 1 of, of Numbers chapter 13, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Now, when they had spied out the land, they learned that it was a great place. It was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. But there's a but. You can almost hear it coming. Look at verse 27 in the same chapter. Here's what they said. They said, we have come to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And so they greatly fear the inhabitants in the land. Jump down to Numbers chapter 13, verse 30. Caleb steps in. He quiets the people before Moses. Caleb, this 
courageous leader. And he says, let us go up and once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Isn't that the correct response? And the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim and seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And so what happens here in this little story, in summary form, is instead of fearing God, instead of trusting God, what does Israel do? They fear men. They fear men. Now, go to Numbers chapter 14, and we see a number of different things that happen. Numbers 14, 2, for instance. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. How many of you remember Keith Green? How many of you remember the song when you listen to it? And if you're like me in high school, you want to go back to Egypt. I remember listening to that song. I had no idea what that meant. This is what it means. So you want to go back to Egypt? You Weisenheimers? You want to go back to Egypt instead of the land that is flowing with milk and honey? So they they grumble. Verse 3 and 4. Why is it that the Lord is bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt, as Keith Green said, where you're safe and secure? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Verse 9, we see that they rebel against the Lord. And isn't that the pattern that generally occurs in life? You, you grumble, and on the heels of grumbling is rebellion. Verse 11, they, they despise the Lord. The Lord is grieved because his people despise him. And here's the bottom line. These grumbling, sniveling people refuse to believe the promises of God. What happens? Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, knowing full well, as Numbers 14 says, that the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But Moses also adds that he will no means clear the guilty. And so what does this passage teach us? And what is Jude teaching us? That God judges the unbelieving. It is Thomas Schreiner who says that God summons his people. That's you and me. He summons his people to believe his promises to the very end of their lives. Christians never get beyond the need to believe and trust. And all apostasy stems from a failure to trust in God's saving promises in Christ. Just as the wilderness generation disbelieved that God would truly bring them into the land of Canaan, thinking instead that he had maliciously doomed them to die in the wilderness. Now, I want to draw your attention back to Jude. Come with me to Jude 5. 
where we see something very interesting. How many of you have ever heard someone say that in the Old Testament, God is a God of wrath, and in the New Testament, God is a God of love? You know, I hear that all the time. And what grieves me is I I read so-called Christian writers who say the same thing, that God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament, and some of them even deny that he's a God of wrath in the Old Testament. And then we learn that God is only a God of love in the New. But I want to have you look again at verse 5, at the very end of verse 5, where we see that afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And it's important that we remember once again that at the center of these three illustrations is Jesus Christ. Who is it that destroyed those who didn't believe? Jesus Christ destroyed those who didn't believe. Jesus is a, a loving Savior, but Jesus is also filled with wrath and will exert his 10,000 degrees of white-hot wrath on every person, on every man, woman, boy, and girl who refuses to believe. Sometimes scholars, theologians, Christians in the pew, they love to play word games. You familiar with this? Where, well, what's it say in the Greek? Well, the word destroyed here, it's a really interesting translation. It means destroyed. (laughs) It means destroyed. It means to utterly lay to waste. What does Jesus do with these unbelievers? He lays them to waste. Listen to Luke chapter 17, verses 28 and 29. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. Do you remember Lot and his wife? They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed. That's the same word in Jude 5. Destroyed them all. Laid them all to waste. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body, but can kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can, cannot destroy both soul and body in hell. See, the Lord Jesus Christ will deal in a final sense with sin. And this is the first reminder. The first reminder is that Jesus saves people who trust in him, and he judges people who refuse to trust in him. That's the first illustration. There's a second one, though, and that is that Jesus judged the rebellious angels. He judges the rebellion angels. Look at verse 6. And the angels, we all like angels, right? And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, look up here just for a minute, he, just take a guess, who is that personal pronoun point to? Jesus. You see, Jesus is at the very center of Jude 5, 6, and 7. Jesus has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So you remember, Jerain asked me, do you have any good illustrations? Illustration number one, Israel. We know what happens there. Illustration number two, the angels. And I want you to look just for a moment at the the origin and the duty of angels. 
The Greek word angelos is is translated angels. It means messenger of God. And if you would, turn turn to the book of Nehemiah, because I think you'll find this fascinating. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. Like I said, we're going to look at lots of passages this morning. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. And here we will see really the the, the job description summarized of an angel. What is an angel all about? Nehemiah 9, 6, you are the Lord alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. May I remind you that that God is the the creator of all things, and may I also remind you that in in most schools, grammar, grammar school, secondary school, public and private universities, and many Christian public and private universities, strangely enough, are taught the theory of evolution, that life arose by chance from non-life, which you need to remember is, is scientifically impossible. That's why evolution is called the theory of evolution. The theory that will never be proven, as one of my professors in seminary said, he predicts in the next 50 years, evolution will be known as the biggest farce that the world has ever believed. So God is the creator. But notice at the end of verse 6, speaking of God, and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. And so angels are created by God, but they are created specifically to, to worship the holy God of the universe, the great Princetonian theologian Charles Hodge, one of the last great theologians before Princeton went liberal, said they be, behold the face of God in heaven. Speaking of angels, they adore the divine perfections. They study every revelation he makes of himself in providence and redemption and are perfectly blessed in his presence and service. Go with me to Psalm chapter 103. Psalm chapter 103. In two weeks, the men in Iron Man, and by the way, if you have not yet come, feel free to come and join us. We will be talking about elect angels and fallen angels in our next session. But here I want you to see in Psalm chapter 103, in 20, verses 20 and 21, another thing that angels accomplish. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels. You mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Simply put, the angelic beings, they they execute the will of God. They, They worship God and they carry out the will of God. They serve, as I like to say, as instruments of his providence. They help to set the wheels in motion in God's redemptive plan. They, they are his special messengers. But there's a shift, as you well know, in the story. A third of these heavenly beings, a third of these angels fell as they rebelled. There's a twofold rebellion that we find here in Jude 6. First, they did not stay within their own position of authority. And they left their proper dwelling. You would not think that the word left has a a huge theological significance, but I looked it up and I was shocked with the meaning. The word left means to abandon, 
to give up. It means to leave with the, with the intent of never coming back again. You think about a soldier who, who defects on the battlefield, and he goes AWOL, and his, his plan is to never go back to the battlefield. It's a permanent defection. That's exactly what happened when a third of the angels fell. They left their proper dwelling. Now, notice what happens here. The angels who do not stay, verse 6, in their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he or Jesus has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. There's something fascinating that happens here. The word kept, the word kept means to, to keep in a particular state or a position or activity. It's a secure word, right? Hold your finger and, and go back. Might, be on, might even be on the same page in your Bible. Back to Jude verse 1. You remember three or four weeks ago, we looked at this very important verse. To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That word kept is the same word that you see emerging in verse 6. It's a word that means to keep, to hold secure. And so in verse 1, we learned that all of God's elect are kept for Jesus Christ. That is, God sovereignly preserves the salvation of his people until the end of the age. Now, this same word is applied to the judgment of the fallen angels. In other words... Our salvation, your salvation, is as secure and certain as the judgment of the fallen angels. Jesus promises to keep these rebellious angels in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That's a sobering reality. But that's the second reminder that Jesus judged the rebellious angels. Notice the third and final reminder in verse 7. Jude continues, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You remember I said when we began the sermon, this is a heavy one? You're like, man, word, you're not kidding. This is heavy. Here we see that Jesus judged the sexually immoral. And that leads us to our third illustration. And I, I think most of you understand exactly what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. And their, their rebellion, like the angels, is also twofold. We learned, first of all, in this verse, verse 7, that they indulged in sexual immorality. It's important that you understand what sexual immorality is all about. This comes from the Greek word that is normally translated pornography. This morning in our Veritas class, we heard Dr. Peter Jones say that at least 40% of men are hooked on pornography in America. This is an epidemic, not only among non-Christian men, but on men who name the name of Christ as well. This word that is translated as sexual immorality is a word that not only refers to pornography, it refers to sexual sin like fornication and adultery and living licentiously. But that's only the first part of their rebellion. The second part of their rebellion is that they pursued unnatural desires. 
as I shared in class this morning, you will hear in the unbelieving world that Scripture never refers to these sins, most notably the sin of homosexuality in the pages of the New Testament. But I would urge you to look with me at Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 27. May I also remind you as I read these verses that there may come a time in our country when it is formally considered hate speech to utter the words I'm going to read right now. May I also remind you that the preacher of the gospel is called to proclaim the word of God no matter what the culture says. Amen? Amen. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. You see, Jesus in verse 7 judges the sexually immoral. Peter the apostle says in Second Peter 2.6 that if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes... He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Do you see why I refer to this as an illustration? I can't think of a more sobering illustration. And so here is the penalty for for their perversion. The penalty is marked out for us in verse 7. The penalty is the lake of fire. The penalty is to fall under God's holy wrath for all eternity. And so review with me quickly these three reminders. Jesus saves people who trust in him. He judges those who don't. The second reminder is that Jesus judges the rebellious angels. And then finally, he judges the sexually immoral. There's a fourth reminder that comes from your pastor, not the text. My prayer is that it will be in keeping with the text. And that is, I want to remind you that we live in a culture that categorically rejects everything I have said so far this morning. The world categorically rejects these reminders. This is hate speech. This is bigotry. This is narrow-minded thinking. This is stinking thinking. This is little thinking. These are thoughts from hundreds and thousands of years ago that we reject, so says the world. These reminders that Jude offers the church, and these reminders that I offer you are simply unacceptable to the unbelieving world. Now, we anticipate that kind of a response, do we not? Since the eyes of the unconverted are blind and lost without hope and without God, and so a negative response should not shock us. But here's what blows me away, is I'm hearing negative responses from people in the church. And it breaks my heart. When the church responds negatively to these reminders, we have a mammoth problem on our hands. In Jude 5 to 7, what we have here is the bow of God's judgment directed squarely at the heart of these heretical teachers, these ungodly wolves who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny the Lord Jesus Christ. But practically speaking, his arrow is not only pointed at the false teachers, his arrow is pointed at you 
if you, ref- if you refuse to cast all your hope and future exclusively on Jesus Christ. If you, if you cast aside his grace, if you cast aside his goodness, if you cast aside the gospel, that heavenly arrow is aimed in your direction. And so we not only need reminders about sin and salvation, I believe we need some reminders about some practical things that are, that are a never-ending part of the fabric of God's cosmos. As I studied this passage, the thought came to my mind is, many people at Christ Fellowship will, will want to know, how does that relate to me? I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm looking around at our church family. I don't detect any false teachers. So how does it relate to me? Pastor, take me to the office. Pastor, take me to my living room. Pastor, take me into the marketplace of ideas and show me how Jude 5, 6, and 7 will impact my life this afternoon. I'm glad you asked. There are some things I want you to remember, four in particular, and this will be quick. First and foremost, I want you to remember from this passage, if there is ever a time I could encourage you all to get a tattoo, I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> I'm sorry, Betsy. Betsy looked at me like, what? <laughs> Actually, everyone else has given me that same look, Betsy. So I'm so sorry. But if you did get this, this massive tattoo on your, and please don't do that. Can you imagine? Mom, Pastor Dave said I could. If you did, your tattoo would say this. Sin is serious. And every day when you woke up, you'd look on your arm and you'd see sin is serious. In 1647, some men got together and they, they looked at the Westminster Confession of Faith, that amazing document that was penned by those godly men. And they came around and they said, we need to make it simpler. We need to make it easy to understand. It needs to be something that children can memorize. And so a year later, they penned what we know now as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Many of you know the the question, number one in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, goes like this. What is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But there's another issue that is addressed in the Shorter Catechism that has to do with sin. And it reminds us how serious sin is. And it goes like this. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. The thing that we need to know this morning is that that sin is serious. And the way I want to apply this this morning is this. I want you to think about the sin in your life that you're struggling with. Not not the, the sin that your, your daughter is struggling with, not the sin that your son is struggling with, not the sin your, your, your wife or your husband is struggling with, not the sins out there, the, the sin right here. And, and to make this very, very practical, because you remember, you're all asking, how does this apply to me? I want you to think about one sin in particular, and I want you to ask a question about that sin. Why is it so evil? Why is it so evil? Let, let me give one sin, and maybe it's the one you're thinking of. Sometimes people have trouble with stealing. We can all agree that stealing is a sin, right? We teach our children 
Don't steal. The word of God teaches you not to steal. And we know that. But I want to ask, why? Why is stealing so evil? And face value, we would say, well, because God says it's wrong. Because God's word says it's wrong. Because you take something that doesn't belong to you. And all of those would be accurate answers. But I want to go under the surface just for a moment. And dig a little bit deeper and remind you that the reason stealing is so evil is because you fail to believe that God will come through for you in the clutch. You see, taking someone's possession isn't bad enough. What's really, really, really evil is you steal it because you don't think God will provide for your needs. And hasn't God told us he will provide for our needs? So, therefore, whatever the sin is you're thinking about, ask, why is it evil? And the answer is because of unbelief. The essence of every sin, the answer, the the essence of adultery, the essence of lying, the essence of sexual sin, the essence of of jealousy, all of the sins, the, the dozens and dozens of sins we could talk about, underneath the surface, the essence of the sin is unbelief. John Piper says, unbelief is turning away from God and his son in order to seek satisfaction in other things. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? God said, eat from any of the trees except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And what does Adam do? He partakes of the fruit. And why did he partake of it? Why was it so evil? It was so evil because he didn't think that God was going to come through for him. He, he was failing to find his satisfaction in his relationship with God. That is the essence of sin. But sin is not only serious. There's something else I want to remind you of. And that is that God will never wipe sin under the carpet. Not ever. Not ever. I remember when our children were younger and either my son or my daughter would do something, you know, pop one of them or something. And we taught our kids to forgive one another. But there first must be a confession. You know how it is? And you see this with children. Oh, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. No, 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 no. You short circuit the confession process. You short circuit the repentance process. Sin needs to be confessed. And so God will never wipe sin under the carpet. His holy character demands that all sin be held accountable. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he bore the sin of every person who would ever believe. Jesus Christ took the hit. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so here's the, the reality this morning. Either you trust Jesus to carry the weight of your sin, or you carry that burden yourself. Either you allow Jesus Christ to endure the wrath on the cross for the sin that you have committed, or you You carry that burden yourself, and you'll carry that burden all the way to hell. I want to urge you this morning to allow Jesus to be your sin bearer. Allow Jesus to be the one who sets you free and forgives you of all your sin and all your trespasses. Isaiah says something interesting in Isaiah 55. Come, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. 
So if you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, you have no idea what I've done. God will never forgive me. I'm here to say that God will forgive you. He will forgive you if you come and receive his forgiveness. There's a third reminder. And I want to have you open your Bibles, if it's not already open, and, and, and go to Genesis chapter 2. And the reminder is stated as follows, that the path of disobedience, and this is real popular in our culture, the path of disobedience will be met with the justice of God. And in order to develop that, that line of thinking, that reality, I want to have you look at three verses. The first is in Genesis 2.17. We just cited it a moment ago. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat from any tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now go over to the book of Ezekiel. You know how you find Ezekiel? It's the big one in the middle. Go to Ezekiel chapter 18. And I want you to remember what, what, what God told Adam in the garden. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Then Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. Notice at the very end of the verse, the soul who sins shall what? The soul who sins shall die. One more verse in Romans chapter 6. And I, I trust these are very familiar verses to you, but to hear them stated in rapid succession and in logical order, I trust will have an effect on you. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. This might have been the first verse that I learned as a child, and it's etched onto my heart. The penalty, or as I learned it in the King James, the wages of sin is death. The path of disobedience will be met with the justice of God. In the garden, Adam learned of this. Ezekiel states it in chapter 18. Romans 6, the penalty or the wages of sin is death. Therefore, every disobedient person who fails to turn to Christ and turn from their sins will be met with the justice of God. And I want to close on a, on a high note, on an encouraging note, because there's a fourth and final thing I want you to remember. It's a big one. The same God who judges sin invites all people to find freedom and forgiveness in Christ. The same God who judges sin invites people to find freedom and forgiveness in Christ. And I would ask, have you heard the gospel message today? Have you heard the gospel message weaving in and out of these passages? Have you encountered the, what I like to call the multifaceted diamond of the gospel that offers that freedom and forgiveness for anyone who asks? And it is simple as this, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So you've heard the reminders. You've heard Jude's reminders in verses 5, 6, and 7. You've heard some important things from your pastor to remember Therefore, I want to urge you with one final thing. Never forget. Never forget. Never forget the, the horrific consequences of sin. Never forget the magnanimous love of God. The God who made provision for sin, your sin and my sin, and the, the life 
and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget the gospel and never forget as we think about Jude 5, 6, and 7. Never forget the context as the the church family is, is hearing these words from Jude. As he is warning them about these false teachers, as he is warning them about the judgment that they will receive along with a third of the angels who fell. He wants to drive it into the hearts of the people that you are secure. You are secure. He will keep you for all eternity according to the riches and the kindness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, never forget the horrific consequences of sin, but also never forget the gospel. Let's pray. Father, with this sobering passage before us, uh, we turn our attention to, to anyone who is in this room who right now would fall under the wrath of God. God, I pray that the illustrations that we have looked at, the illustration of, of Israel, the illustration of the fallen angels, the illustration of Sodom and Gomorrah, would speak to someone. And for every non-believer this morning, I pray that they would see themselves in each of those scenarios and that they would see that failing to trust Christ will lead to eternal judgment. And may that lead them to the cross of Jesus. May they see that freedom can be theirs, that forgiveness can be theirs by turning from their sin and by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what a great hope that we have in the gospel, God. We thank you as we leave this morning that we have been reminded of some very sobering things, but we've been reminded of the, the, the great reality of the gospel because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us to live these things this week. Help us to live in light of the gospel. May we be kind to people who we run into. May we be kind to those who, people whose eyes are are blinded to the truth of the gospel, for it's the God of this age who has blinded their eyes. And may may we have a powerful impact into their lives as we speak truth to bear, all for the glory of God. May we never forget these great realities in Jesus' name. Amen.